You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We just had a crazy election season, and while we've done a little bit of conversation here about it, we haven't really delved into it in the the partisan way. And, and we're not going to get partisan, but we've not really delved into it that deeply. It, I just told a friend of mine that I, I felt like I needed some therapy, and he said, let's do it. So I've got on the line with me, Strong Towns member, one of my good friends, Seth Zarin. Seth has been on the podcast before. You in Providence today? Is that where you're at? That's where I am, right? Yep. New I dad. Did my own little move. To, yeah. Yeah, I'm a new dad. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. You're talking to us somewhat sleep deprived or not? Uh, last night was a little bit rougher than usual, but I have to say it's amazing how much more lucid I am on five hours of sleep than I ever thought possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of being a dad, you know? Does the brain chemistry change? Yeah, it does. You know, before parenthood, I could never do what I've been doing the last few months. <laughs> I was so sick of people before I became a parent telling me how, like, you know, oh, your life is going to change. And I'm like, well, I, I kind of like my life. Like, I, I don't think it's going to change. I'm just going to have a kid now with it. And then I look back and I'm like, God, I was a simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, no, it's been good overall. This is yeah. what I found. Now, Now, tell me. We're in the Christmas season. There's that scene in The Grinch where all of a sudden his heart grows like, you know, four times bigger. That was the experience that I had. And it's not that I had a small heart, but my wife and I started dating in junior high and dated through high school and, and college. And, you know, if you think you like love someone, you know, I love her the max. Uh, you know, she, she would have been 10 out of 10 for me. And then all of a sudden I found out the day this kid was born that my scale wasn't one to 10. It was one to a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a spinal tap, you know, yeah. go to 11. Right. Um, exactly. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is pretty amazing. And also, you know, in the holiday season too, it, you know, we got like our first grown up full size Christmas tree. that's like eight feet tall and, you know, all that kind of stuff that is, um, it's a pretty magical time. I mean, obviously she can't appreciate it. She's still working on eating and sleeping, <laughs> but, uh, the little one, but, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty magical. You know, it's, it's been kind of a, a crazy year for us too. Cause you know, we moved to Providence almost a year ago and have been getting settled in here, kind of doing our incremental development, move to a smaller city by a small multifamily thing. Which we talked a little bit about this summer at CNU, but I think, you know, with the election too, and having a kid and like we sort of, I started a sort of a new business doing small scale development in town. It's been a time of a lot of transition and a lot of sort of uncertainty about what the future holds. And, and obviously, and you know, you mentioned therapy for me, you know, I think I'm doing okay, but there's a lot of people around me who are, who are also sort of in need of therapy. So I'm kind of curious what, what it is that kind of prompts you to have that feeling of, of needing to talk about it. Cause I know you've had some, some conversations on the blog and, and on the podcast, where are you at right now, Chuck? A big part of this is that I step back and I acknowledge that there's a lot of fear out there. I also acknowledge that I'm not feeling that. <laughs> and I, I was trying to explain it to my wife this weekend to try to understand it a little bit better because I, I said, you know, this year I made a very conscious effort to read books outside of what kind of were just my normal interest. And when I published my year-end book list last year, I, I had a bunch of people kind of, I won't say attack me, but they scolded me. They said, Chuck, you know, you're reading these books about economics and about whatever, but, you know, you need to read about, like, you know, cultural studies and, you know, women's studies. And, and they made some recommendations to me. And so this year I read, like, Between the World and Me, which is a, you know, a, a very popular book. Yeah, I was one of the people who recommended that to you, too, Okay, actually. You were maybe one of those. I also had recommended to me the, the new Jim Crow. Between the World and Me was one of the most baffling books I've ever read. Okay, I read it in book form, and then I totally didn't get it 
And so I listened to it in audiobook and I thought maybe like, you know, my Spock brain will actually be, you know, <laughs> like if I, if I listen to the guy actually speaking these words, it, it will not just seem like some foreign language to me. No, the same, same result. So I read the new Jim Crow and I'm just absolutely like moved and humbled and just like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't process what I'm reading. And so I look at the election now and I'm like, okay, I, I know a lot of people are feeling a lot of things and feeling them like really, really strongly. And I'm not like a feeling first kind of person. I'm more of like an analytic well, person. you're an engineer. Right. You know? <laughs> I'm an engineer and you can hate me for that, but I, you know, that's who I am. No, I hate you for no, it. I know you don't, yeah. but I mean, people but, who, who yeah. want me to be something different, right? Well, right. You know, I think part of what you're describing for me is the strength of the strong towns world, which, you know, like all places has its caveats and its strengths and weaknesses. But I do feel like over the last, you know, whatever few years we've built a community that has a lot of different perspectives. You know, I'm coming more from the, like the politically liberal side of the spectrum. You're coming from more of the libertarian side of the spectrum. And unlike, it seems like in the broader society where people are getting siloed off into their groups and only talking to people who already believe all the same things as each other, there is this, I think, productive back and forth of ideas. It's civil and it's constructive and we don't always agree and we make arguments and it, it may be we're learning stuff, but it, it feels very different than what I see out in the broader culture. Um, so that has been, a, for me, a, a good part of my therapy. I think, for me, my participation in Strong Towns has been one of the ways in which I also feel a little less immediately emotionally responsive to current events. I mean, obviously, I think it also helps that you know, I'm a straight white dude in his middle thirties with decent income. He's also a real estate developer. So, you know, I think I'm not in any great immediate financial or, or economic or social danger, but you know, I need stretch of imagination. And I do know people who feel that more acutely and I can't say whether or not they're wrong to feel that way. You know, I think there's an empathy process that we're all trying to struggle with. And I think for me, strong counts has been an important part of that. So I have appreciated your reflections in the, in the past, few weeks on on that it's felt really painful to me though and and i am likewise you know the the 43 year old straight married male i am the comfortable person you know you and i both have taken irregular paths in life i could have just been an engineer and had a very secure job and you know i've, I've not chosen that path I understand that other people are more vulnerable than I am and have more reason to be fearful than I am. But, and I'm going to give like the, the but now, like on my Facebook feed the day after the election, I said, you know, despite what the politicians would like us to do, they, they really benefit from us fighting. We really need to talk to each other and we really need to understand each other. And, and we really need to make a concerted effort to be better than our politicians and better than our political process. And one of the first people who commented on that was a, a woman that I know who lives here in Minnesota, who I, I know personally, and her comment was, that's easy for you to say, you're a white man. <laughs> it was one of these things where like, I don't even know what to do at this point. You know, should I just slink off into a corner and not, you know, have, have any, any reaction? You know, and, and this is kind of the thing that, you know, in, in my friend network being, you know, more liberal and more democratic, there's a lot of discussion about, like, what's the right way to respond to current events, right? And for me, it's been a, a feeling of kind of the first reaction was, wow, I was really surprised. I should probably, you know, go back and reexamine my priors because maybe I don't understand things the way I thought I did. You were so surprised first, by the outcome of the election. I was surprised by the outcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that the outcome is going to have really significant consequences, both in sort of our world of the built environment and other places as well. But, you know, that surprise uh, for me translated not towards so much as towards anger, um, but to sort of, you know, a, a need to understand and to sort of be open to the idea that I don't understand everything that's going on sort of to your point about needing to talk to each other. It's like, clearly there's stuff going on here that I, I, I don't understand. So I need to be more open to talking to other people who are not living my life. And I think the challenge from that then is the question of like, how do you build constructive responses? And I think that's sort of going to be the interesting challenge for the strong towns folks 
you know, because as much as it's not an ideological or you know, it's maybe a little bit ideological, but it's not uh, partisan in any way, kind of movement or set of ideas, there's this, you know, we're going to be engaging more and more with a political environment that is polarized, that does have partisan affiliation that you've, you've talked about Jonathan Haidt recently and about the importance of tribalism, right? And there's, I think, a risk of getting too associated with one tribe or the other to the point where the other tribe then thinks you're like an enemy and won't listen to you. Right. (laughs) Yeah. um, And I know you've had, you've had this experience where you go to one town and they're like, Oh, strong, you know, smart growth, liberal wacko Chuck Marone. And then you go to another place and they talk (laughs) about you as the libertarian fiscal conservative. And it's Uh, like, well, you should change town to town. No, it's, it's very true. I have some places where I'm acute, you know, I go and I show up and you know, it's like, why are you bringing this hard right winger? And then I go to other places and they're like, who is this liberal, you know, this liberal trash that you're foisting upon us? I'm used to that. Like that, you know, that's been like part of my career actually, since I was doing planning work. There's a certain push that I'm getting from those on the left of the political spectrum now that, that goes something like this. People are vulnerable and this election like makes them more vulnerable. And the only like ethical reaction is for all of us to lock arms in a sense in solidarity with each other. It's not enough to be a, an organization that worries about the fiscal health of our cities. You also have to be an organization that worries about the fiscal health of our cities and LGBT issues and social justice issues and, you know, climate change and, and every other issue you have to be in solidarity with everybody else who's worried about that right. in exactly well, the same this way. Is the, this is the critique that that people have made, you know, from within the left and, and also around the political spectrum that there is a sort of dogmatic characteristic that, you know, I, I'm sort of persuaded by this at times that, you know, like you're just sort of need to have consistency across your belief structure. And the argument certainly could, could be made about the right as well today uh, in America. No doubt. Right. And and I think what's interesting for us, too, is that if you do become sort of a, a group that's focused on every issue, you're going to lose some of your room to maneuver. You know, so there's a certain sense to which if if you really care about, let's say, the built environment and, you know, that's your, your goal. It's not that you personally don't care about other things and you can be involved in other causes kind of in your own time or in other context. But then you have a little bit of ability to question orthodoxies that are in place from other, you know, perspectives and, and try to, you know, bring forward new ideas or, or new ways of looking at things and also form alliances with, you know, cause once you align with a, a complete tribal identity, then, you know, I think CNU has been sort of successful at doing this of trying to avoid becoming just those lef- lefty liberal wackos. I mean, obviously tribalism is a strong force and we keep getting pulled into stuff, but you know, you want to be something that, you know, if you have a, a Republican governor, or Republican mayor, you're still salient, you know, you're still relevant instead of becoming, I don't know. So for me, I, I, I want to resist that urge, but I, I do sort of perceive, you know, when you feel like you're under threat, you know, you've got to kind of, you know, it's like the total war, it's like civic total war, you know, you got to mobilize every aspect of society towards your, your efforts. I had a family member that went through a divorce. It was really, really difficult. And I think the difficult thing about it was that no one in my family is going to listen to this podcast, so I, I don't have to be nuanced about this. <laughs> um, you know, really, at the end of the day, the family member was the one who, if you were going to take a side, like if I, if like a force to take a side, I'm like, you know, you're kind of a creep. You really screwed up there. And the thing is, is like the non-family member, we all loved like very much, you know, like this was a very decent person. There was this period of time where it's like, okay, I want to be supportive of my family member. I really do because, you know, they're in my tribe. Like I want to support them. Uh, and they're part of my family and I, I love them, but I also like don't want to be cruel to this other person who actually is a, like a really good, decent person, but just it's not going to work out. The, the problem was when you have a divorce like, like this one, you're forced to choose sides. They push you in one direction or the other. My wife and I really have had a lot of, uh, of stress with my family because we were kind of unwilling to 
we were willing to, in a sense, be on the side, but not like fire weapons. You know what I'm saying? Right, 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 right. You can express solidarity without like weaponizing. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> like I, I wasn't willing to, to shoot, to, you know, line someone up on the other side and shoot them. Like I, and that was kind of like the line. Like if you're not willing to do that, I feel a little bit like now, I'm not trying to be on a side. Like I, I really don't, I don't identify politically with either of our two major parties. I feel like one side is able to say, okay, Chuck, you know, we'll agree with you when we agree. And when we're not, you know, we, and we're going to be suspect of you, but you know, but I feel like the other side now is saying, if you don't get in line, you're off the team. Yeah. I, I, I see that too. And, and I think it's a, it's something you know, that people need to work on because it's, it's not constructive, right? It leads to what you're describing is, you know, essentially divorce and, and it's, a, it's a rupture that exceeds the, the, the individual people or group of people that are immediately involved with it and thread sort of more broadly in society, you know, without trying to be apocalyptic about it, right? That's the kind of thing that fractures societies. And I don't think that that is particularly beneficial to us to me, one of the things that was helpful, I think this was in one of your podcasts, like right after the election, you know, I know you were traveling over the election. You had this sort of point that was really helpful for me to remember, which is that, you know, for example, for me, I, I would have been happier with Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. But the, the reminder is, is that, you know, things were getting bad. You know, if you look at it from a strong town's perspective, our cities and towns are in a lot of trouble. It's not clear to me that, that a Clinton presidency would have really helped that <laughs> to be frank. You know, I don't think that, the Democratic Party has, you know, for all its lock on cities and towns, doesn't necessarily have a particularly good lock on strategies to make it better. You know, it's one of those things where you're like, well, on the one hand, you know, for me, it might, it might really suck. It might be really frustrating. It might be scary. But, you know, it's important to remember that it was already frustrating and scary and didn't work. You know, it's the overlapping domains thing like we were just talking about, right? So in the built environment, it's not clear that anyone's really got a plan that is at all helpful or where you want to line up. And I think you sort of described that in terms of your own political decision-making this season. I think a lot of people's concerns come out of those other domains that you've been, people have been sort of asking you to, to pick a side on, you know, in terms of social issues around race and gender and, and, and what have you. This summer, I felt really compelled to write that series about the routine traffic stop. I feel like I'm making everybody mad just by having this conversation, but Okay, I'm in Shreveport this fall. I'm meeting in a neighborhood, an extremely poor African-American neighborhood where the city is looking to run an elevated highway just through the middle of, you know, a la oh, 1962 all over again. Oh, all right? over again. Yeah. I am so moved by the story of these people. You know, I'm so moved by it because here they have these, you know, these signs that they put up, you know, this neighbor, this place matters and they're out there, you know, planting flowers and tending gardens and, and they have a neighborhood. I find it like really, really compelling. But then I'm online and a friend of mine who's an African American says to me, uh, you know, if you are not supporting Medicare, <laughs> Medicare is a social equity issue. And if you don't support Medicare, you're not really for social equity. And there's this part of me that's like, okay, I'm, I'm not asking for credit for being, you know, supportive or against this project and supportive, but I'm also, I don't think I should, should be castigated for thinking that Medicare maybe should be reformed or done differently. I feel like I want to engage with it because I feel like it's important. I mean, I feel social justice is an important issue. Like I wouldn't define it as Medicare. And is that because I'm not getting it? Yeah, there's this large discussion about the evolving, mostly left framework around social justice, which, you know, can be problematic and has maybe done some really good stuff in the last decade or two. And I think, you know, you're describing, I think, a real challenge for strong towns going forward, right? So if, if the goal is, let's say, you know, how do we create a movement with a million members or, or how do you build that momentum? How do you start to change the conversation in in every state and, and ultimately at the federal level? Like, you're right. It's, it is a bit of a minefield. How do you navigate that without, you know, also becoming part of this other ser series of battles in our society? I guess is the interesting question. If I look at that neighborhood in Shreveport, on multiple strong towns levels, it's wrong because it is a waste of money. It's a bad project. 
it is really, you know, these centralized transportation systems that are kind of foisting this funding scheme down on the city. And then, you know, there is this social justice dimension that just adds to kind of what infuriates me. It's like, you're only doing this because these are poor people and you're only doing this because this neighborhood's not well represented. Right. This is to your point about the the traffic stops, right? If if every Lexus driving lawyer was getting pulled over for driving five miles over the speed limit or like having a a headlight out, which, you know, all of us have done that, right? Every, your, your article I thought was great because I have had the same experience, right? Everyone is a violator of our traffic laws because they don't really make sense. And so what they do is they become this way of, essentially electively targeting people for other reasons because you've got this framework that everyone's breaking the law, right? It's, it's a, not a great strategy uh, for anyone, regardless of whether you're like a white lawyer, you just happen to have the ability to protect yourself from it because of class and where you live and the car you drive and whatever else. Right. right. Exactly. Um, exactly. And that's not great. Like, you know, I think, you know, that is not a good thing, but it's a different way of looking at the argument than the way that, sort of social justice, quote unquote, all caps is, is defined right now. And I think that that's challenging. So do you have ideas on how you want to navigate that minefield, you know, in 2017? I'm, I'm, freaked, <laughs> I'm freaked out because like literally I, I feel like I could quote Gandhi or Martin Luther King right now, you know, and it's if it's not aligned with what the current, you know, approach is. I actually saw a Martin Luther King quote like two weeks ago. That was, I mean, it was, it was brilliant, but it was one of these, you know, colorblind America quote or what have you like that. People were attacking it as not being like socially progressive enough. And I'm like, this is friggin' Martin Luther King. Like, what, what do you want? Right, right. right. Think of it this way, right? When, when you first sort of came across the Ponzi scheme idea, right? What was the first response is, wow, there's, this, this, this doesn't make sense. Something's wrong. Maybe I'm just crazy. That's what and I thought. Yeah. What's going on. <laughs> or, or maybe, or maybe eventually we realize that no, other people are a little bit, you know, that no one really knows what's going on, right? And then the next response, which is something I want to come back to a little bit in terms of my sort of feelings about sort of the movement right now, is um, sort of the next response was rational responses. So cultural tribalism is probably a forever thing in human societies. You know, like we're going to create factions, we're going to pick colors in sports teams and whatever like that. I think that's probably a permanent fixture of our society and we're going to find ways to do that. So given, given the challenges that exist, like how do we respond rationally? We're not trying to like permanently solve our institutions or our media or our culture. So what does a rational response look like? And I, I think that framework, the, the switch from sort of perfect solutions towards things that make sense given the facts that are on the ground today with the recognition that we'll probably be wrong in 20 years or 50 years or something is a really helpful mental flip to make and to, to share with people. Your pieces around, around Ferguson and around the, the traffic stops, you know, have I think been effective in part because, and, and really this is strong towns in general, right? One of the reasons why the, the liberal environmentalist smart growth people like strong towns is because when they first see it, right? They're like, Oh, look, now we know how to talk to conservatives, right? Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, this guy can translate for us. But but it's it's more than that, right? So I look at it, one of the problems that we have is that because of certain historical political alignments, right now the left in the United States tends to view itself as the party of the pro-federal government and pro-centralized planning and design stuff. But that's not necessarily an historically inevitable feature, right? You know, why do you assume that the government that is typically often the source of oppression is your ally necessarily? It doesn't, it's not a permanent fixture, right? It's not a fundamental alignment. That's part of the challenge. You know, because I've been sharing this story with a lot of liberals and helping them see that, that there's opportunities to sort of reimagine how we, how we do things. And it's, it's challenging for a lot of folks to do that. I struggle a lot with that, the idea of the means and the ends, because I, I really do feel like if we sat down and I think this is where you and I have found a lot of common ground too. And, and you know, our friend Ruben, uh, one of our commenters who is, uh, very active and he is, uh, he is, you know, f- politically fairly far left as well. We've found this common ground, I think, in that we actually want the same things. You know, I, I feel like at the end of the day, we, we really agree on a lot of the same things. I mean, if we're going to define social justice as people being treated fairly and equitably, 
and having, you know, good opportunities despite whatever ethnicity or class they would fall into. I, we're all, I'm all for that. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. I, I think where we struggle sometimes is, are the means. Our debate right now is, and this is why when I started writing in 2008, it was after the election, because I'm like, this is, this is crazy. We're having an election between top-down government means centralized or centralized top-down corporate means, but nobody's really talking about distributed power and, and actually like empowering people, you know? Right. Yeah, no, I think that's sort of the concern we have is that it's not like you're going to get more local control <laughs> or, or more, you know, individualized solutions necessarily under the, the new administration, right? I want to put a little needle in this four-way framework, you know, you've been helping to develop the sort of between the orderly and chaotic and the smart and dumb. <laughs> and I think it's it's helpful in a way because it, it doesn't necessarily imply what you're trying to do, right? It, it's a, I sometimes, because I have a baby, so I'm commenting a lot less than I used to, but I sometimes will like just chime in being like, it's not about the specific outcome, it's about the process by which we get there, but the understanding that that outcome or the goals or whatever may change through time, depending on circumstances, et cetera, right? You want that sort of evolutionary, anti-fragile kind of thing to be able to occur. I think one of the things that I've been struggling with a little bit, and maybe, you know, I think this is a funny thing, right? You talk a little bit about sort of behavioral science stuff, but Jonathan Haidt, there's also this challenge of, of implicit bias, right, in our, in our tribal affiliations and our sort of, you know, our ideological origins make us better able to see, you know, the faults in other people than in ourselves sometimes. I don't know if you read Gladwell's book, Blink. Um, yeah, yeah scared, exactly. Scared the hell out of me. I mean, right. here's a guy who, I can't remember what his ethnicity is, but he's not, you know, he's not a white Complicated, dude. Complicated, I yeah. think this is the answer. <laughs> he said he was being shown, like, these pictures of just people's faces. And the the darker the skin, the higher, like, the reaction that he would have. They had him hooked up to these machines and stuff. And he said, I'm not a white guy, right? Yeah, I mean, I've had some, I've done some of those tests, too. And it is, you know, we have to deal with the fact that like, you know, the neuroscience is a real thing. You have implicit biases. We can attempt to consciously counteract for that, you know, um, and we can work with, you know, an institutional framework, whether it's complicated and top down or whether it's simple and local to try to moderate those in pursuit of our larger principles, you know, around justice and fairness and so forth. I think the interesting thing that I've been wrestling with, and I, I'm kind of curious how you think about this going forward is, right, the strong towns, you know, I guess consensus right now is sort of very pro chaotic, but smart. And I really like that too, is my own sort of experience has been very much moving towards the informal and the tactical urbanist type work and seeing what people have been able to do when they're not following a lot of rules, they're able to create these really beautiful, great things. And at the same time, it, it seems like there are good examples where people have done orderly, but smart things. And obviously lots of examples of people doing orderly and dumb things. And I guess the interesting question is how do you distinguish between those two things? So I, one example I would give is like, you know, a sewer system and you've designed some sewer systems, you know, they're necessarily big, complicated things. You know, if you're supplying London, how do you do that in a way that is, you know, orderly and smart? And how do you, and then the other example I would use is like you know, Jarrett Walker, our friend who does a lot of transportation or transit at, you know, consulting work. You look at the, the 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 new bus plan for Houston, which I think is recently. I think it's actually just reposted on the blog today. It's a really cool project, but it is very much like you know some experts and some analysis and a redesign, and it seems to be broadly better than the alternative. You know, and and the way I guess I was putting it into the context of the responses is that I would I would support the proposition that right now we are overly orderly, and that a response would be to find good ways to correct that. If it's, you know, 1860, we might find, or 1880, we might find that more order in our cities would be better than more chaos. I don't know. It's an interesting question for you, I guess, about how do you... I've struggled with that one. I fully acknowledge that my, you know, embrace of chaotic but smart is is part of a pendulum going back and forth, right? We're, we're very too much orderly but dumb. I think maybe the question is, you know, could you have centralized top-down things that are smart? And I, I think the answer to that is yes, but to me, they would tend to be simpler. So for example, I think universal basic income, that could be, 
you know, fairly simple and, and I think really smart. A whole collection of social welfare programs at the federal level, administered at the federal level. To me, now you're getting orderly but dumb, right? They're, they're trying to do, they're trying to do nuanced things. Right. I look at it in the building code too. And, you know, you just had this, uh, another horrible fire in California, right? And it's an interesting thing. It's like, on the one hand, you know, you look at the, I've looked at some of the photos of what it looked like before. And it was this amazing, beautiful, awesome space, right? You, you know, you want rich, cultural spaces like that to exist in society. And yet the other side of you is like, well, you know, it was dangerous. It didn't have sprinklers. It probably didn't have much noise alarms. The electrical was probably out, out of date. And so, you know, I find myself sort of struggling, like, how do you embrace the, the desire for informality and, and, and nimble change while also the recognition that it's, it's really nice in the United States today because of our rigorous code environment that, you know, we have relatively few buildings burned down and relatively few deaths. And when an earthquake happens, the whole city doesn't feel like there's a lot of nice things about better building code compared to other countries where that may not be the case. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a pendulum swing, too. I, I was thinking about this this morning. It's sort of like, you know, this is to your point about simple versus complicated, right? I just filed some, some fire permits this morning, and it was a sort of painful process. And it was very complicated and, and, and it's going to be very expensive to install. And I was thinking as I was doing it, like one of the reasons why there's so many relatively unprotected buildings is because it's expensive and complicated and time consuming and painful to figure it all out to improve it. So maybe instead of trying to improve our maximum fire safety percentage, like the, the, the super code compliant building is going to be so safe. What if we were spending our innovation time trying to figure out how to make like the next incremental improvement in fire safety simpler or easier or more affordable so that, you know, anyway, so this is sort of your point, like, how do you find a, a simpler solution? And I wonder too about like, then how does that relate to the example? Cause you know, Janet Sadakan in New York was also sort of a top down reformer, you know, is, is a bunch of experts, but it seemed sort of top down, but chaotic or, or <laughs> something kind of funky about it. Right. Yeah. The New York one's an interesting example because you, you do have a centralized top down system doing chaotic things to me that that is less like organic than it is essentially like a laboratory experiment. For the record, to me, chaotic but smart is not experimenting on people. I think Andres Duani, uh, you know, said it best when he goes, planners love to experiment on the poor. I'm not suggesting that, that it be an experiment, but, but actually an, an iterative approach. Ruben has, has used the, the, got me kind of in the ecosystem mindset. You know, the idea that, you know, evolution works through iteration. And, you know, natural systems have small iterations and, and lots of feedback. That's a systems thinking as opposed to an outcome kind of thinking. If we don't know the answer, how do we go about finding it? Well, the way we find it well, is... Well, even, even if we think, yeah, and even if we think we have the answer, right, we have to approach sort of our proposition with that, with that evolutionary mindset. So rather than squelching all alternatives and all sort of opportunities to receive feedback... We should, you know, because if you look at it, you know, in those systems, when things are evolving, it's not like no one's come up with a new idea. It's not like no new organism mutation occurred. That's all happening. Um, and it's happening quite a lot. And I look at, you know, the, the Jacobs point, which is really what we want is a lot of plans, not one big plan. And so even if a, a centralized organization is coming up with a lot of little plans, which is maybe a better example. So, right. So you look at the New York City plan, it's, you know, it's 100 different road segments versus one highway. So even in that level, it's it's a more sort of nuanced and, and fine-grained kind of thing. So I, I, I only mention this kind of because I, I would agree with you that there's a pendulum swing and that more work needs to be done on the, on the being comfortable with chaos and funkiness and uncertainty side. Um, but I think it's, it's maybe worth remembering in a sort of metacognition, strong towns perspective, that that is not necessarily a, a perfect truth at all times equally, although it is probably a persistent truth. Let me get us, let me, let me get me in trouble here then. Um, okay. Because this, this is actually something that I've, I've thought a lot about and I've thought through about if, if we look at the, what are the kind of crowning achievements of the, the civil rights movement in the last century, you know, you, you have these, these kind of things that bubble up in the, in the teens and the twenties. And then you have the Second World War and segregated units 
but you know, being able to be in combat. And then you, you have this period of segregation and then you have the sixties and the civil rights revolution. To me, I, I look at that and I say all along the way, we had despotism. We, we had things that were, were, were clearly and obviously wrong. I mean, just I, 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 in a moral sense, this was an immoral system. And, you know, we had this kind of, you know, big kind of top down, uh, you know, set of legislations. And then the, you know, we're going to force not only busing, but we're going to force integration of schools and all this. Our tendency is to look back at that and say, none of that would have happened without that top down, you know, thing. I have a hard time arguing against that, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to stand up and say, no, it would have worked itself out in time. But, but now if we snapshot today, the, the fear today is that, well, we live in a this deeply divided country and, you know, 47% of the people clearly don't care about racial issues in the way that, you know, the other whatever percent does, or at least that's the way it's, it's kind of framed. Yet that's the narrative. There's this little part of me that says, okay, I read the new Jim Crow. I feel like I intellectually get the systematic racism argument and I'm sympathetic to it. Like I, I understand it to me. How do you deal with that? I don't know as, you know, because it's systematic, I almost feel like the solution to it or the, the reaction to it has got to be on an individual or a, a, a community level. But if you, if you, you so in terms of how you would respond to institutions that are, are messed up, let's just take for discussion's sake that 50% of this country is, is what we would just call racist and would, would desire a system that is, you know, racially biased because it advantages them and it disadvantages people that they're, they have, you know, racism with. Okay. So if we just start with that as a, as a premise, then the, so, you know, understanding that we may not necessarily agree with the premise, but it's a premise for discussion. Sure. Right. From a systematic standpoint, you have bas- the, basically half the country is going to trend towards systems that are racially biased and are racially prejudicial, and are racially detrimental. And to me, you, the only way you solve that problem in the long run is by essentially the churn of humanity. You have to actually deal with you know, the fact that we don't know the other, you know, you, you actually have to deal with the fact that, you know, we, we need to have a deeper understandings of each other. You use the example of sort of early civil rights. And I think you're right that, you know, you look at opportunities where people were able to come together. And some of that was in the military, of course, and help build understanding and, you know, contingent, problematic all the way down, but more, you know, if you had, sharecroppers from Mississippi along with like, you know, shopkeepers from Philadelphia in the same unit that starts to change people's understandings, even just a little bit, right. And create some positive momentum. Let, let I me, think one of the things that let me take me, this, yeah, go ahead. let me take this to the next step though. Cause I, I think here's the, here's the place where I struggle with. If, if we said that like racial tensions are going to be diffused in a bottom up chaotic, but smart way, by people, you know, getting to know each other better and working together and, and, and communities, uh, you know, this is going to happen at the local level over time. I actually think that we would get to a better world, but I don't think we would get to a world where there's any type of equality. In other words, I can see a world where instead of having, you know, like our theoretical world, 50% racist and 50% not, I can see us getting to a world where we have, you know, 90% of people who are open and accepting and, you know, have no like, yeah, we're working towards social justice types of goals and 10% who were, you know, like unredeemably racist, if we want to put it that way. I feel like the world we're in now today is is kind of almost like meant to divide us. It's meant to keep whatever those things that are keeping us from seeing the other side and, well, it, and working it's, it's towards part of your it. point that as part of your point that in some sense there's a there's a need for some consolidation or some sort of ground level work before institutional change is going to be effective or useful like you know 
sort of, you got to do a little bit of one before you do the other and then back and then forth. So I, forth. I think that's a good way of putting it. Cause like the, the new Jim Crow, I, I, I keep going back to that book because it was very informative for me because it, it basically, if you said, Chuck Marone, are you a law and order guy? I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm a law and order guy. Well, do you think that, you know, minorities should be oppressed by our, you know, legal system? Well, absolutely not. In the new Jim Crow, those two things are kind of equated and equated in like systematic logical ways where I can see that my support of, you know, law and order candidates for government, uh, whether I want it to or not, had led to this outcome. So a, sort of a byproduct, right? There's, it's it's there's, a byproduct. They're sort of right. tied together. Yeah. Right. Now, are there people who support law and order candidates who are motivated by racial animosity? I don't think there's any question that that's true. I don't think it's 50% of the population. What I am suggesting in the chaotic but smart is that if we try to deal with these things in a centralized way, if it's, if it's Trump, racist, Clinton, you know, social justice, then everything's going to be a def- an absolute defeat or an absolute victory, you know? I agree with you. And I look at it in our local transportation advocacy work where we're trying to get a highway torn down. And, you know, when you work with the centralized system, I'm dealing with a bunch of institutionalized DOT civil engineers who just, you know, fall on their book, right? It's their road, right? They own it. They're going to design it, kind of, you know, so we can pump on it on the margins. We'll be more effective over time if we're able to change the cultural consensus around what roads are for, what infrastructure is about, or all that other stuff. And that may be better pursued at a, you know, at a, the tactical urbanism framework that's just in town squares and main streets and neighborhoods and so forth, just to start the change. And and every um, now and then you're going to have the really stupid engineer and the really stupid department who comes forward with the really idiotic project. And I guess the question is, how do you deal with that? And to me, I, I feel like if you have a broader institution that finds that kind of thing unacceptable, that that will become more and more marginal over time. Now, I say this as the guy who has nothing to lose, right? <laughs> right. And, and I'm, I'm willing I know, to... That's, that's I'm, for both of us, right? Right. I'm willing to acknowledge that. But I'm, I'm also, you know, struggling to say, how do we, how do we actually get there? You're telling, again, the story of civil rights. And one of the things I find a little bit different, and, you know, this may be a historical or whatever, but just bear with me here. I get this feeling that the current sort of social justice narrative or political organizing is very much... It has a lot of, whether it's orthodoxies or, or bright lines and stuff that are difficult to cross or you shouldn't cross. And then it, it, what it feels like is it's, it's, it narrows the pool of potential support. And what strikes me a little bit is, and I think the genius of, of some of the aspects of 60s civil rights organizing, and again, all caveats that I wasn't there and I don't necessarily know that much, but it seems to me that part of the idea that was very effective was is that you wanted to grow the people who supported you, right? And a recognition that if you're advocating for the rights of 10 or 15 or 20% of the population, you're going to need some other people who are on your side. And so the pictures of, of the, is, the pictures of the dogs attacking children was right. very effective. It, it, you know, it's terrifying, right. but it's the genius move because what it does is it allows it, it makes you sympathetic. Right. And so one of the best books I read last year or like, you know, 2016 was this book by a few Serbian activists. So after the, the, the Balkan war, Milosevic is still in power, right? Before he goes to the Hague for war crimes. And this, so there was this sort of youth civil, you know, resistance thing that was happening. And they, they wrote this book, which is, I thought, really fascinating. And they talk about, uh, it's called um, Blueprint for Revolution. And, and their, their goal was is that they knew they needed to get more people on their side. You know, if you draw a line from change versus support the, the current guy, you have to get people on your side, not push people off your side. And so they were very conscious that they had to get, in their case, particularly the, you know, the pensioners, the, the, you know, the old guard, you know, older people who would, you know, show up and vote. They're socially significant. So how do you make them want to join or at least tolerate your movement as opposed to actively oppose it, right? That's a strategic challenge. And same with working with the police. I'm not going to be able to give it justice, but it was striking to me that there's a sense that you want to build your allies with a, as a broadly sympathetic message and campaign and narrative and story and imagery and marketing and the whole package rather than pursue sort of ideological purity uh, of ideas. 
So that to me is sort of a striking difference that I, I, I feel it being unproductive around me. Like I feel people being driven away from wanting to help because so like for us, right. We talk about, you know, fiscal health of municipalities, right. Which doesn't sound like it's at all related to social justice, but if when your town goes bankrupt, like let's talk about the things that are about to get cut. Right. And it's, it's not going to be pretty. The people who have money are going to leave. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and the same with the sidewalks versus handgun allowance in Ferguson, right? It's the same kind of story. And so because for reasons, you know, for complex reasons, the right is assumed to be the side that gets to care about fiscal discipline and, and, and money, regardless of the reality. But like, that's the story, right? They care about that. And it feels like on the left, you're like not allowed to care about solvency issues because then you're on, you're doing the other team's thing. <laughs> Very strange. I thought, you know, you do your little Q&A thing on the podcast a couple, you know, a week ago or something like that. You had this really brilliant segment on how do you talk to an engineer? Cause I, I think, you know, you email me you, about you, that and I don't remember saying anything. So what did I say? Well, so let, let, No, I, yeah, I don't think you got back to me. So let me, let me sort of set it up here. So there's, there's this, we've been talking about, there's this broad consensus about yay infrastructure, right? In America. And there's complex reasons for it. it it's 50% like economic competitiveness, 50%, our country looks like hell, 50%, um, you know, stimulus, right? There's <laughs> 50%. There's a lot of reasons why people want to do it. But we all, we all sort of in the strong towns world have a lot of concerns about the way that's going to happen. Right. 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 Yeah. Keep it simple. We have a lot of concerns about the way that's going to happen. And what's interesting is the way that that consensus is transpartisan. It's not like, you know, like Donald Trump's now associated with doing a bunch of infrastructure, right? So the question we have to ask is sort of how do we, do similar ninjutsu? How do we change the conversation around what our infrastructure should be, how we should invest in it? Uh, you look at what the, you know, the civil engineering groups have done and be able to create this narrative, this, this set of truths about how the world works. And, and the connection to the podcast from last week or the week before was someone asking about like, how do you get the engineers to acknowledge that their math is not pure truth, it's a values assumption you know, that I think has to be one of our challenges because we have to change those assumptions somehow to get better roads. Because I'm dealing with these, these like 55-year-old civil engineers who just want to build bridges and, and overpasses. Getting them to imagine anything else could ever work is like impossible. So I got to get them to change their assumptions about how the world works. Um, so how, how do we do that? <laughs> it is. And I, how do we get there? Today's, the, the blog piece that I wrote this morning I was listening to a speech that um, Tomas Sedlacek gave. And Tomas Sedlacek is that economist that I've been reading a lot of this year. I think the guy's brilliant. He is definitely not like an Austrian economist, and he's definitely not a, a Keynesian. He, is, uh, he, he doesn't have a place. And I, maybe that's kind of why I'm drawn to him a little bit. He, he made this statement about ideologies and beliefs. And he was talking about economists. You know, economists are not aware that they even have beliefs. Uh, they just, they have them, you know, like humans are, uh, utility maximizing rational beings. He goes, that's a, that's a construct we came up with in the lab because it made our equations work. But, but, you know, now all of a sudden it is a, it is a belief. And, I think a lot of what we did in engineering um, was to come up with things because they made uh, our growth system work. You know, we, we had to build these highways across the country after World War II, and there was a, a need to do it at speed. And we came up with all these kind of compromises to do that, including the compromise of actually thinking. You know, we just have these systems, and they have their own internal values, but we never, we never stopped to question them. Yeah, Neil Postman has a book called um, Technopoly, and he talks about that, you know, technologies and, and by extension, organizing systems that are kind of technology and institutions, uh, they're not value neutral. <laughs> like, even if you think they're value neutral, they're going to have, you know, as much as they may provide benefits, they're also going to have costs, and you probably didn't figure out all of either when you started. Uh, so, you know, you got to be a little bit cautious about that and maybe reflect on it and decide, you know, I have, I have immensely respect for the Amish because, you know, the character aside, like some people who actually maybe took some time to reflect on whether they wanted it or not. And then said, maybe no, that's like, I had the great opportunity to spend a, a week with Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn. 
talk about eye opening for me. I mean, small town guy here in a huge city with people who have in many ways rejected, uh, you know, rejected modernity in, in some ways, you know, certainly rejected, uh, the, the rat race that I associate with cities. There's a lot of tension in New York with the Hasidic Jews. I found their way of life beautiful. I mean, I, I really did. I, I found a lot of it to be the, the one guy that I got to be friends with. I'm at his house and, uh, you know, his house is like smaller than my college apartment. He has three kids and he is watching over two children from someone else. And, you know, wh- why are these other two kids here? Well, uh, they're going through some marital problems and, uh, they're having a tough time. And so we, you know, had their kids come and live with us so that they can take some time and, and, you know, have a little bit less pressure and, and figure things out. Right. Who does that? Well, so, and that, you know, well, but what did that the strong citizens do that? Right? Strong so citizens do that. Is, right. Exactly. You're, you're describing the sort of cultural transformation, right? We talked, we sort of been talking around a little bit, but you know, it, it, we have to sort of for ourselves through a combination of understanding and action, start to be better citizens of our place, you know, not conquerors, not owners, but like participants, you know, um, part of the built environment, part of the natural environment, part of our social environment in our community. And it's, it's an idea that comes for me from the land ethic, which is an Aldo Leopold concept, which is really about agricultural land, you know, that the people should take care of their land, not just exploit every last ounce of nutrients, uh, that there's a symbiosis there. And I think for me, there's an urban land ethic of like, you know, these buildings I inherited, I live in a 120 year old building and I hope it's here for another 120 years. And so we have this sort of set of responsibilities to our people, to our buildings, to our streets, to our parks, to our rivers, uh, in our built environment too. And I think it's just so hard. And, and maybe there's some truth to this idea that we need to, that a lot of things have been changing and, and for many people changing for the better, but it's, you know, there, there may be some challenges just for society in terms of their complexity and their ability to absorb newness and change. I don't know if this is another thing that's probably not a popular statement, but, but we may need some time to sort of get used to stuff that's happened in the last 10 or 20 years. Also in cities, figure out how to like live together because there's a real challenge between sort of the new people who are moving to cities and the people who got left here in the 60s. And how do we like coexist in neighborhoods again? That's going to be a challenge. So I, I don't want to leave on a, live, live on a, a downer note. I, I feel like in some ways this is going to be an ongoing conversation for us about how do we, within the strong towns orbit and generally in terms of people who want to create or want to pursue this sort of set of objectives for ourselves, like how do we continue to do that, recognizing that it's not just a design or an engineering challenge, but it, it is a, a cultural and a political and a process challenge going forward. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I wish it weren't. I mean, really, I think it was so much easier for me back in the day when it was just engineering, you know, I'm going to say something that's going to make, I, I'm not trying to make myself sound great here. You know, th- this has been kind of a painful journey. It would have been a lot easier to just like, I'm an engineer, I'm going to do engineering work, and I'm not going to ask questions about, <laughs> you know, this. There's a lot of I think that that goes on, that's very comfortable, whether it's engineering or planning or economics or sociology or, you know, whatever the the narrow band of understanding that we have is, it's a lot more painful. But but I, I feel like as strong towns advocates, I feel like as part of the conversation we're having here, if we don't step back and ask some bigger questions and... um you know, allow our conversation to go in, in these, you know, other directions. I think we're just going to be just as lost as, uh, as people are today. Now, maybe we'll lose ourselves on the way. You know, I, I, I think we should balance our sort of our philosophical, intellectual, historical, um, introspection or, or discussion with action and with, with attempt. Um, you know, that we have to, we have to be, for me, it's like, how do we, how do we sort of live out the sort of pragmatic ideal, you know, this sort of American school of philosophical pragmatism in which experience and, and trial and error and just observation are more important maybe than pure rational thought. And, and that we recognize that everything we know is kind of contingent upon, you know, the time and the, whatever's happening and so forth. I think if we can, maintain the tensions, you know, that the balancing acts between the various 
maybe paradoxes or contradictions or, or competing desires, if we can maintain that, I think that'll be our, our, to our benefit. Yeah, I, I agree. And I actually think that the way we resolve some of this tension is to go out and do stuff. I mean, I, I, yeah, for, for strong towns, Oh my God. Part of our strategic plan. I mean, part of, uh, this year was really building this audience and kind of showing that we can be a digital media company and, and do that well. Uh, but the next phase has always been, how do we connect people and, and have people, you know, take action. And, you know, and I, I just want to say, one thing about the action thing too is that yeah. we, we have this idea that consensus based planning of like getting together in the conference room and talking it through is like the best way of, you know, coming, bringing together. <laughs> you say, ideas and stuff. You say just, we in a very broad sense, not we as you and yeah, me. Yeah, we, right. we, we, in, it's the broad consensus in most governance in cities and towns, right? right. You, you form a committee, you know, you create the stakeholder committee, you, you have a panel, whatever. And, you know, there's, there's a role for some of that, but like I have just, I, I find that getting out there in the park and setting up the little trial and error, but you get more people there. You get a much more diverse group of people will come. And and for me, the thing that's really inspiring about tactical urbanism is, you know, the, the design outcome stuff, whatever is great. But for me, it's the, the political transformation. People realize that they're actual agency as opposed to just being, you know, saying no or being stuck with what other people do for them. And so if our goal is to build strong citizens, we have to help people, discover for themselves that they can do stuff and, and to learn from each other and from history, how to live well in communities again. Cause I think we've lost a tremendous amount of sort of that cultural equipment or whatever in the suburban experiment. I see people moving back to the city and, and they want to be in the city, but they, all of their assumptions and all of their, like they say the stuff that's like still the suburbs. Right. If they right. Would do it, they would just, they would screw up the thing that they wanted to come here for. I'm like, how do we, we, and I don't, I don't have any, I grew up in the suburbs. I don't have any like monopoly on that truth, but all, all I recognize is that I, I we need to relearn the skill set, this sort of cultural ethical skill set. The strong citizen thing I think is going to become more relevant than ever uh, going forward. I totally agree. Let, let me leave you with one last thought that I think is, is going to be humbling, but also empowering uh, for you as a dad. When the kids were born, all of a sudden, this chronometer started to run uh, that I hadn't felt before. You know, like I said, my wife and I dated through junior high and high school and college. And, you know, she ages at the same rate as I do. And so, you know, I, I never really noticed. I mean, she's, we're, four, we're in our early 40s. She's beautiful. I love her. We have aged the same. She doesn't seem older to me. But when I look in the mirror, I realize that, you know, like I am, right? But it's a, it's a slow process. The thing is, when you get this little one, it's like time speeds up. You, you know, you've seen it in just the weeks that you've been with this, this daughter, you know, the, the clock starts ticking and it speeds up and you get this sense of urgency in life because you realize that, uh, wow, life moves really, really fast. When I look at where you're at right now, and the adventure that you're, you know, you and your wife are starting out on and kind of, you know, this, this, uh, path we're taking as a country, things, <laughs> things move pretty quick. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think as kind of crazy as it is now, we're going to see six months from now, 12 months from now, a year from now, you know, two years from now that it'll be different and it'll be changed. And, and hopefully if we can, get enough, uh, uh, you know, positive momentum, we can keep things changing for the better. Cause I'm, I'm optimistic at the end of the day. I, I know things are tough, but I'm, I'm optimistic that if we, uh, if we keep at it, it's going to work out. All right. Yeah. I think I, I appreciate that, Chuck. And I think continuing to find ways to, to have a, a positive and proactive story for ourselves and to be energized by our challenges rather than to sort of be, I don't know, enervated by them uh, is going to be really important because there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, thanks, Chuck. I appreciate it. Well, thanks. To... I love you, man. It's uh, it's good therapy chatting with you. I appreciate you taking the time. And I'm looking forward to this national gathering uh, next year. <laughs> Me too. It's going to be fun. I, I really can't wait. All right. Awesome. You, you take care. I'll talk to you again soon. Take care, Chuck. Bye-bye. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care.
We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. 